Hi, I'm Ida. I'm an arts and culture journalist and a writer. I cover a lot of topics related to Asian identity, especially Asian American identity. Anti-Asian violence and sentiment has been on the rise since last March. Recently, my partner Miles and I just started a project called Protect Our Elders. It was geared at really raising awareness as well as giving folks resources to try to focus their efforts because a lot of people like myself were feeling really helpless about the situation and didn't quite know you know, what they could do to help, actionable ways that they could contribute to the cause. Eden and Miles put together an Instagram post leading with an image of a red lantern with wraparound text reading, support our Chinatown, support our community. The following slides showed a timeline of xenophobic attacks on Asian Americans this year, as well as several actionable ways to help. We've also opened up a GoFundMe in order to crowdfund and redistribute the donations to a list of grassroots orgs, both in the Bay Area, L.A., and New York. Like the GoFundMe Ida mentioned, which redistributed the money it raised to organizations like the Filipino Cultural Center and the Asian Prisoner Support Community. And it did raise a lot of money. We thought we were only going to get to 5K. The response... Like in the first day alone, we beat our goal of 5K. We moved it to 10K and beat that in the same evening. And we set it to 50K. And then it reached 50K the second day. And so the fact that people were so responsive was really, really encouraging. I think that gave us a lot of hope and a lot of positivity that we were looking for in that heavy situation. In seven days, we raised 150K to redistribute to organizations that have like really never been on the map on social media in that way. Hey, William. What's up, Winston? How's it going? Winston Chu is a New York City-based chef and business owner. Over the past year, we've seen instances where violence has risen due to these claims that the Asian community are associated to the spread of COVID-19. And it's only gotten worse over the course of the year. He also saw the recent surge in hate crimes against elderly Asian Americans and decided to take action. So our Enough is Enough campaign is a platform where we can get small businesses, mostly um, Asian-owned, to help represent the voice, but also spread the message of community, the message of hope, but also the message of unity. Not only serve senior centers that are Asian community-based, but also including, you know, Black and Latino communities as well. The response has been great. We've raised up close to $40,000. And we hope that this sparks a movement for other people, like small business owners and small community organizations, to understand that if we come together and really focus on the task at large, we can't really chip away at it. You know, New York City's Chinatown means a great deal because it's a cultural center and to our heritage itself. And I know growing up as a child, my grandmother lived in Chinatown. And when I would go out, you know, just seeing Chinatown and, and getting a piece of just understanding, like, this is my culture. And this is, you know, something that I can relate to, but also find meaning as also American, right? So um, being an Asian American is very important to see both sides, but also find that fusion where we can co-mingle and find a balance um, that we can represent proudly. 
there are people all over the country stepping up and using their time and platforms to raise money to support Asian American communities right now. And there's also so much we all can do, regardless of our own situation. I think sometimes it's really as simple as going to your local Chinatown. You can also get involved with local organizers if you live in a city where that's happening. But then if you also want to just share on social media to raise awareness about what's been going on, because these attacks are still happening, like they're not, they've not stopped in any way. I think a lot of this still comes down to, in the national discourse, us not super understanding the fact that like, Asians aren't a monolith and breaking down that model minority myth. I think all of that is work that is important and necessary and it's stuff that we can do every day, not just when this is happening right now, but all the time. In this week's episode, we're shining a light on stories from some of America's Chinatowns. But we wanted to start things off by highlighting some people, making positive efforts in the community, and point you guys towards ways you can help. Throughout the episode, we're going to hear stories from a few Chinatowns around the country, including New York, Oakland, and Las Vegas, and we'll continue to give you ways you can support grassroots organizations, local businesses, and more. I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. Thrillist New York City editor Tae Yoon has spent much of the past year writing about ways to help local businesses in New York City, especially restaurants. And as someone who grew up in Flushing, Queens, saving local restaurants, especially those in New York City's Asian communities, is of the utmost importance. Tae has our first story today about New York City's Chinatowns. For out-of-towners, downtown Manhattan's historic Chinatown is probably what comes to mind when thinking of Chinese enclaves in New York City. But if you ride the 7 train to its last stop in Queens, about a dozen miles from Chinatown, you'll find Flushing. Here, at the Flushing Main Street stop, Asian residents make up 70% of the population. Like most Chinatowns around the country, the neighborhood encompasses many Asian cultures. And as a Korean-American New Yorker and Asian-American person myself, I'm proud to call Flushing, Queens my hometown. It's where I was born and raised. Flushing's booming Asian community dates back to the 70s when Asian residents first arrived in the area. Now, downtown Flushing is known for bustling sidewalks and endless options of Chinese-owned restaurants, shops, and small businesses. Flushing Main Street is where I spent countless hours eating and going out with fellow Asian-American friends. The area played a huge role in helping teenagers who looked like us in feeling that we had a community of our own in Queens. Flushing's endless food options mirrored what so many of us ate at home with our families, where the captivating smells and visuals of our favorite dishes could be enjoyed without feeling othered. There was always something new or exciting to eat in Flushing, and this is also what's made the area's eateries such a large draw to many non-Asian people as well. I feel like because a lot of people, when they think of like good dining place, good restaurant, they'll think about some place in Manhattan, right? It's like New York City, but Queens is also an important part in New York City and with lots of cultural diversity, I think. Wesley Sin is a marketing and PR manager for FNT Group, the developer of local retail spaces like One Fulton Square and Queen's Crossing, with restaurants like Nan Xiang Xia Long Bao. 
If you want to taste an authentic Chinese food, I think Flushing will be the destination for you, because I think the area is much larger than Chinatown. The selection of food is also have a lot of variety in Flushing, because in Chinatown, a lot of like cuisine are like Cantonese or like more traditional stuff. For example, in Flushing, you can taste the Shanghainese xiaolongbao, the soup dumpling, and also you get to taste the Taiwanese beef noodles. There are a lot of like a, a lot of like Chinese style barbecue and like grills. A lot of them have really nice dining environment. So I guess if you are willing to try something new about Chinese cuisine, Flushing is the place you should visit. And like so many business operators in the area, he of course has seen a devastating decrease in business the last year. The business dropped a lot,、uh, according to those owners. The the customer dropped at least fifty percent. In Flushing, they are working. I mean, working hard to survive during the pandemic. Chinatown in downtown Manhattan saw a similar decline in business, even months before New York City's first official COVID-19 case. Due to anti-Asian sentiments and xenophobia, many local businesses saw a drastic drop in foot traffic and customers before other New York City neighborhoods. So pre-pandemic, Chinatown used to be a really bustling neighborhood where you would be jostling. It would be hard to walk down any of the main streets. This is Grace Young, a Chinese American, James Beard Award-winning cookbook author and culinary historian. There was always like the aunties and the grandmas and the mamas all around you, like fighting for produce. She can also be found in Chinatown a few days a week, running errands, buying produce, and getting takeout. I would definitely say that Chinatown exudes a special charm. It's real, and I think that's what appeals to people: that it has grit and it has grace. Everything about Chinatown is about. Mom and pop businesses. Ninety-eight percent of Chinatown is made up of mom and pop stores. So that's what I love about Chinatown. Early on in the pandemic, Grace was one of the first to start publicly advocating for Chinatown. Her video series for Poster House, Coronavirus Chinatown Stories. Interviewed local business owners during a time when so much about COVID was unknown. The series was filmed literally hours before New York City's first official lockdown was announced. As seventy percent of Chinatown restaurant tours had decided to make the difficult decision to close their eateries. Business in Chinatown, I am told by shop owners and restaurant owners, dropped sixty、uh, to eighty percent. So it was pretty bad, and I thought that if New Yorkers heard their stories, that it would rally support. So we ran over to Hopkey, and he gave us a two-minute interview. And to our shock, he said, "This is the last day. We're closing." So the restaurant dates from 1968. His father opened it with some partners. It had never been closed like this. The chefs, plural, were sitting on stools. The walk was silent. There was no cooking, no chopping, no washing. It was just complete silence. 
I will never forget the look on their faces. And then the next interview we did was at Hop, Wohop, right next door. And the manager, Ming, said to us that 70% of Chinese restaurant owners had decided to close the following day. So we found ourselves in the middle of living history in a situation that was rapidly changing. Chinatown's small town feel is unique to anywhere else in Manhattan. This is in thanks to its countless family-owned businesses that are passed down through generations. So I remember going to our store when I was really, really young. Sophia Sao is the second-generation operator of the renowned Po Wing Hong Food Market, which her parents first opened 40 years ago in Chinatown. Before the pandemic, business was pretty good. I think that the turning point was when we had to shut down the business because New York City was basically on lockdown. That was a real struggle for my parents and I because my parents, they wanted to stay open. And then ultimately we had to shut down because our employees didn't want to come in. And without employees, you cannot run a business, especially a store our size. And where else are you going to find that? Like the new places aren't going to do that. We lose that and we lose those cooks. Those cooks cook in a particular style that young people don't do anymore. So it's just so scary that they're vulnerable. And Chinatown is really fading right now. It's diminished. We've lost 100 restaurants. We started with 300 and we're down by about at least 100 restaurants right now. So my great nightmare is that in the future when we want Chinese food, we will be forced to eat from Panda Express or P.F. Chang's. From Flushing, Queens to downtown Manhattan's famous Chinatown, or even Brooklyn's large Chinese community in Sunset Park, the many Chinese enclaves throughout New York City have always epitomized the immigrant story in America. And as a nation of immigrants, the pandemic has taught us just how important it is to celebrate the contributions all immigrant communities make to the fabric of American culture. One thing I realized during this pandemic is that Chinatown holds a special place in ABC culture. And it's nice to see that, you know, that generation is now embracing their Asian-ness and that it's cool to be Chinese. I think that's not something that I grew up with, that kind of sentiment. And so it's nice to see the younger generation really embracing their culture and wanting to help Chinatown. With the citywide vaccine rollout only in its early stages and the end of the pandemic nowhere in the near future, Chinatown, Flushing, and their small businesses are in need of our help now. So a lot of people ask me, restaurants all across the United States are suffering. So why should we care any more about Chinese restaurants than any other restaurant? And it's, it's true. You know, we need to be rescuing all restaurants and all mom and pop businesses. But Chinatown is a historic immigrant community. I think that Chinatown is such a, a symbol of America. How many other places can you go in this country where you can see a living immigrant community? 
Chinatown is a national treasure and we need to protect it because it represents the American story. Help save the historic neighborhood by supporting its local eateries and shops through socially distant walks, or check out some of the links we've included in the description. We have a link in our description to some of Tay's work for Thrillist, including a profile on Grace Young. And if you want to help out New York City's Chinatown directly, Welcome to Chinatown is an amazing grassroots project. And right now, we're going to hear a little bit about their mission from co-founder Vic Lee. We are a grassroots, hyper-local organization that supports Chinatown small businesses because many of the business owners that we work with, English is not their native language. And a lot of it, too, is that out of um, COVID and, and seeing access to PPP funding, they weren't able to qualify. So we decided we just had to do something. And we formed Welcome to Chinatown. It's essentially our love letter to Chinatown because for me, this is... It's basically my home where I grew up. I I really equate Chinatown to Asian American identity. There's two funds that we maintain. One is called the Sikfan Fund. So Sikfan in Cantonese literally means let's eat. We launched the Sikfan Fund as a way of generating revenue for the about 300 restaurants that are in Chinatown. So we order bulk meals from these restaurants and then deliver them out to neighborhood food pantries to address the growing food insecurity within the community. The other major initiative that we have is the Longevity Fund. The Longevity Fund is the only exclusive small business grant for Manhattan Chinatown. If you think about helping small businesses to recuperate overhead costs, you're also investing into the sustainability of these small businesses too. Um, another way too, just supporting outside of monetary donations, we launched a small business directory on our website. Um, and for that small business directory, we also want to look at putting the narrative into the small businesses so that they can tell us why you should go there. So there's anything of the silver lining of from the pandemic and the xenophobia that hopefully encourages a lot of individuals like myself and volunteers to become more passionate and to really think about what's that social good impact that they can make. You can find a link to Welcome to Chinatown in our description, and we're going to take a quick break. So check out Welcome to Chinatown and stick around because we'll be right back. The Bay Area's Save Our Chinatown initiative has been able to raise tens of thousands of dollars for community services and local businesses through fundraising, special product releases, artwork, and even a food-focused zine. Daphne Wu is one of the driving members of this initiative, and she was nice enough to tell us a little bit about their mission and some of her own favorite local businesses in Oakland's very underrated Chinatown. Hi, I'm Daphne Wu. I live in Oakland, and I am a volunteer with Save Our Chinatowns. Save Our Chinatowns was founded by Oakland artist Jocelyn Tsai back in March 2020 after the Bay Area County's ordered shelter in place. Jocelyn saw a need and really wanted to put her talents and her skills to help support Bay Area Chinatowns. For the past few years, I've been working in community events that are really supporting local small businesses. And, you know, having grown up in the Bay Area and being around Chinatowns, I know how important Chinatowns are to the Chinese community as well as the broader Asian community. 
And so I ended up being a really big fan of what she was doing and ended up volunteering my skills and resources to help the cause. One really important characteristic about Oakland Chinatown is that it's a living, breathing Chinatown, meaning it's not fossilized or meant to be a tourist attraction. And so for Oakland, it's been tough to see a lot of these food businesses specifically being impacted, but then that also impacts so many of the other businesses that are located in Chinatown. In 2021, we launched a New Year fundraiser with a recipe zine called Have You Eaten Yet? You know, as artists and creatives, it's a very kind of lo-fi way to bring ideas and art together in a fun, creative form. So the zine itself is, is primarily a recipe zine. We work with three businesses. So that's Yuan Hop Noodle Company, Kam An Deli, and Greenfish Seafood Company. And so each of them contributed a recipe for the zine itself that really represents their business or their family recipes, etc. And so on top of that, we also wanted to showcase a little bit of the history of Oakland Chinatown. We also asked a couple community members what were their favorite spots in Oakland Chinatown. You know, what are the favorite businesses? You know, what's their favorite dishes? I had to put together a whole list. <laughs> So based on how I ordered this, I think I'll start with markets. I'll start with Hop Noodle Company. It is actually one of the oldest establishments in Oakland, still standing. It's a small grocery store with fresh noodles, dumpling skins, tofu, plenty of pantry goods, and some fresh grocery items as well. And then next, I love visiting Greenfish Seafood Market. They work with local farmers in California, and they have really fresh produce as well. And one more market that I love to go to is Leona. It's actually a market for vegan and vegetarian food products, which are mostly from Taiwan. Chinese cuisine has a long history of using plant-based meat products, and it's primarily for Taoists and Buddhist cooking. But as someone who's looking to eat a more plant-based diet, I can usually find most of the substitutes I need. Shout out to Leona. <laughs> All right, so in terms of restaurants, I'm going to start by highlighting all the Cantonese restaurants. You can't go wrong with Imperial Soup. They have amazing herbal soups and healthy dishes. It's great comfort food, especially when you're not feeling so well. When you want to go fancy and go all out, which, you know, it's hard to do that right now, but Peony is one of the best dim sum restaurants I've been to. They have really high quality dim sum and banquet style meals and really fresh seafood. I got to meet the owner a couple years ago and, and it was really impressive to just see how seriously he takes his craft. And then next you have Shooting Star Cafe, which is a Hong Kong style cafe with a Cha Chang Tang influence, meaning they have a lot of the kind of casual meals and dishes that have the East and Western influences. And so you can get all of your favorite comfort snacks and desserts and drinks at Shooting Star. One of my favorite spots that I miss dearly is Tasty Steam. It's a Cantonese style hot pot, but also steam restaurant. So similar to a communal hot pot or Korean barbecue style restaurant, you would actually have a communal steamer 
in the middle of your table and a server would handle your seafood, meat, and vegetable dishes. And then underneath the steamer tray is a cauldron of bubbling congee that's been catching all the drippings of everything that you've steamed. It's definitely one of my favorite restaurants. All the seafood was always so fresh and something that I miss dearly right now in this moment. Aside from Cantonese food, Oakland Chinatown actually has quite a lot of different regional Chinese cuisines as well. There's a restaurant called Bian Huang, and it's Diuju, but it's actually by way of Vietnam. There's actually a huge diaspora of Diuju people in Southeast Asia. They have this amazing dish called the Chaoju Ho Fun Noodle Soup. It's a clear broth with thick rice noodles and topped with pork, beef balls, and seafood. And it's a very light noodle soup, but it's very flavorful and it's a great comfort food. If we want to explore Northern China, there's Tianjin dumplings, which they actually serve this dish called jianbing. It's a Northern China egg crepe and it's stuffed with fried dough sticks that are called youtiao. So if you want to explore more of the west or southwest of China, you've got Spices 3, which is Sichuanese food, a must for spicy food lovers. So another defining feature of Oakland Chinatown is that it also represents other Asian diasporas as well. And so I wanted to give a shout out to Kaman Deli, which is a Vietnamese deli they primarily serve banh mi's, and then they also offer other Vietnamese deli dishes, for instance. The owner, An Nguyen, she's also featured in our zine. Her story, it's really amazing. It's kind of like a full circle <laughs> experience. Her first meal in America was at the original shop called Kam Huang, and then the owner, 30 years later, asked her if she wanted to take over the shop. So a couple of years ago, Un eventually just took over the shop, and she's been really happy to be a part of the Chinatown community ever since. Last but not least, I want to make sure I highlight some of the desserts and snacks that you can find in Oakland Chinatown. So there are plenty of boba shops in Oakland Chinatown, but one of my all-time favorites is this little booth called the Sweet Booth. It's located in Pacific Renaissance Plaza, and it's a, a small little drink and dessert shop. And the owner makes everything from scratch, from fresh ingredients, and he always reminds you of it too. <laughs> and then when it comes to Chinese desserts and pastries, some of my favorites are Napoleon Super Bakery and Ruby King. They offer the typical pastries like egg tarts, pineapple buns, and so on and so forth. The most amazing part of this fundraiser for us has actually been seeing how it's inspired other creatives to fundraise for either our cause or other causes in their communities, you know, putting forth their own art or their own talents, um, their amazing creations that we've seen. And so whatever you can do to inspire others to help and support the cause, we highly recommend it. Check out our description for a link to the Save Our Chinatown website. You can find a whole bunch of resources and ways to help there. When you think about Las Vegas, you probably think gaudy casino floors, all-you-can-eat buffets, and maybe catching a Britney Spears or Barry Manilow show. You probably don't think about Vegas' Chinatown, but you should. The Chinese first came to Las Vegas when it started in 1905 as a train town. They brought in 
laundry and restaurants, which were the two things that could be found in most American frontier towns. They prospered in those areas because as a train town, it had a lot of passengers coming on the train. They would feed them, they would do their laundry. This is Su Fan Chung. My name is Su Fan Chung, and I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I taught from 1975 until 2014. She might know more about the history of Asian Americans in Nevada and Las Vegas than just about anyone. How did Chinatowns begin in Las Vegas? It's a very interesting story. Chinatowns were always commercial in Las Vegas, not residential. When the Fong Gardens opened in the 1950s, they tried to have Chinatown in Fremont Street. And it it didn't really go over. But then in around 1995, James Chun of Taiwan opened the Chinatown on Spring Mountain Road, and it was anchored by 99 Ranch Market. And it's really not a Chinatown. It's an Asian town. It has Korean food, Japanese food, Chinese food, Southeast Asian food. It was so successful that all along Spring Mountain Road, a lot of restaurants, a lot of entertainment centers, uh, and so forth opened up to attract not only the Asian crowd, but the non-Asian crowd as well. A couple miles west of the Strip on Spring Mountain Road, you'll find a stretch of approximately four miles filled with Strip plazas, many fixed with Tang Dynasty-inspired architecture, most with some type of Asian restaurant, market, or business inside. This is Las Vegas' Chinatown, and unlike most Chinatowns in America, it is relatively new. And it's becoming one of the must-visit attractions in a city built upon must-visit attractions. It's a tourist destination. It's a place you can go to. You get tired of gambling. You get tired of swimming in the swimming pool at the hotel. And so you can take your family to Chinatown to see something different or eat some different kinds of food. So it is part of a destination area, but it also is an area that services the Chinese Asian American community. On Spring Mountain Road, you can find a spread of Japanese, Chinese, Thai, Korean, Vietnamese, and Taiwanese restaurants. Kai Vu is the chef and owner at one of the more popular restaurants in the area, District 1. We are Asian-inspired restaurant. So my background is Vietnamese and my partner are Chinese. And my chef is, you know, American and uh, Hispanic. So we, we all get together and, you know, kind of play off everyone's uh, culture and background. And uh, that's how we come up with uh, the whole vision, the whole menu for District 1. I mean, we moved here in 1994, before even have a Chinatown. And just, you know, the past three to five years, the culinary community here in Vegas is growing. Before, it's only like one block, you know, maybe three plaza of like Asian place. Now you have almost two miles. So it's very uh, diverse and it's a very good group of people. Hang Wong has also been in the neighborhood for more than 20 years. So he's seen all this change firsthand. He works at a casino in the Strip, but he also owns Cafe Maiko, a matcha cafe in Vegas's Chinatown. Back in the day, like I said, it was very limited. I mean, there wasn't really much option to dine in, especially for like a authentic Asian cuisine. 
But now there's numbers of restaurants that I haven't even been to myself because there's just so much option now nowadays. In his opinion, Chinatown has become a necessary stop for anyone visiting Las Vegas. I almost say Chinatown's almost like a must. You know, everybody will somehow visit Chinatown for something. You know, for their restaurants or like a drink or you know whatever Asian culture that's here. And aside from being another destination for would-be tourists, Chinatown's growth has positively affected the overall food culture in Las Vegas. Joe Muscolione is a chef and restaurateur. He's the managing partner at Shanghai Taste in Chinatown, and he's been working in Vegas in food for the past two decades. When I first came here in 2004, certain fish I was buying from Brown and getting them shipped to me. Certain food types, like even Red Boat fish sauce, I was buying on Amazon. And they would ship it to me on dry ice and stuff like that because you couldn't find it. Now I could walk into one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, there's more than that, but there's six just in Chinatown. There's six large Asian grocers. Five of them have over 35 whole fish every day. One, two, three of them have over 10 tanks. Like for example, yesterday there was live catfish. Of course, lobster, prawns, but the Santa Barbara prawns, like the really big ones, twenty one ninety nine, all live. They even have like live tilapia.、Um, again, ten to eleven fish that are still live in tanks, and thirty five fish that are so fresh that the eyeballs look like they're shining. They're going to pop out. And of course, all of this has helped a growing community of Asian Americans, including Chinese Americans, feel a little more comfortable in Nevada. Here's Hang again. I've been here for twenty years, and and there's a lot more Chinese people that's in town now than before. I think Las Vegas is a great city. We got a lot of people moving from California because the price is so high over there. Asian population has been growing so fast. I wouldn't be surprised seeing there will be like a new Chinatown or a Asian hotspot、uh, popping up soon. And here's Su Chong. Because of the increase of the Asian American population in Southern Nevada, and you can also see this happening in Southern California, growth of the Asian American population, and I think that is helping to keep the Chinatowns alive. For those who live in Las Vegas, it's something that they use. For those who live outside of Las Vegas, it's a place that they come to for various. Times, you know, I remember one famous cook in a restaurant in Central Nevada. Once a weekend, she would travel down to Las Vegas to buy all of the goods to use、uh, in her cooking for her restaurant. Restaurant owners like Hang and Kai both said that while business has obviously been decimated by the COVID nineteen pandemic, takeout and delivery has helped them survive over the past year. And at the risk of being overly optimistic. They're both predicting Las Vegas's Chinatown to continue its upward trajectory of growth in the upcoming years. So, when it's safe to visit Vegas again, you should certainly build Chinatown into your itinerary. I just feel like、uh, good things are coming. I just think that Las Vegas is growing. I know that as soon as you know things are stable, this city is gonna boom. For more information about Las Vegas's Chinatown, we have some articles in our description, and we want to especially thank Thrillist contributor Rob Ketchelreese for all his help in researching this segment and putting it all together. Check out his writing if you haven't already. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be right back to wrap everything up.
Okay, that does it for us. We have a bunch of links in our description if you want to support some of the organizations we mentioned in this episode. And just a quick reminder, check out our New York City Weekend Guide podcast for a weekly itinerary of safe and fun things to do in the city. You should also call our travel hotline, 1-833-PODBABY, to share your own adventures with us. And if you like our show, give us a five-star rating and share it with your friends. We really appreciate the support. Okay, special thanks to the podcast Dream Team, Jake Rasmussen and Mia Fask, editors Dean White and Abby Austria. Special thanks to Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, and from iHeartRadio, Mangesh Hadakudor. That does it for us. We'll see you next week.